Our reading is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want us to take a chance. This is probably the only time I'll be preaching here uh, this month. So I wanted to take the opportunity to do something that I've been trying to do for myself. And that is to go back to one of my favorite passages that Chuck taught through. And just kind of make sure that as we're returning a few months later. To make sure that... We are not being just hearers, so we'll go back and ask ourselves what we've done with this verse. The verse we're going to be focusing on is verse 9, but let me read verse 1 through verse 10. Actually, I'm going to back up to chapter 4, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our Outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen Are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn our hearts to you in the midst of a busy week with so many things that would crowd around our feet and clamor for our attention, things that are valid things that you have commanded us to be careful with, but as we come together with other believers tonight, we want to lay them aside, set them aside, willfully turn our heart's focus to you, to your word, to the worship of you. We want to see your worth as it is in the scriptures. We want to feel your worth. And we don't want it to just remain concepts, fine words and doctrines and things that we could nod our head to. We want it 
to impact us and just rearrange everything to scramble the old life and the old values and to be remade in the image of Christ more and more every day to love what he loved, to to have what we just sang, that we would have his zeal, the zeal of the God-man that he had for you. We want that. The great compassion, the burning love for people around us that he had. God, we need that too. And we know that while we will never walk perfectly in this life, and God, we will not reach that glorious pattern of Christ in every way, but that is the, the mold. It is what you've chosen for us, that we would be made like him, progressively, daily, continually. We trust in you, the one who began the work. You began it before we were lovely at all. There was nothing in us that attracted you. You began this great work of love before you created us, before you created anything. You promised us to your son as a gift. And in time, you gave us your son as a gift as well. And we have embraced him. Every believer here this evening, by faith, we believe what you have said more than we believe what we feel or what the world says. Help our weak, easily distracted faith. We pray that you would help us this evening in a way that affects how we go to work tomorrow or get up and go about our normal tasks that may on the surface seem so unspiritual, so insignificant, and yet they are all to be done for you, for love, for glory, so that the world could see through our very significant tasks the extraordinary and uncommon privilege we have of belonging to a God. We pray that you would work in us this evening as a teacher, but also as our king. Take us by the hand, protect us, provide for us, guide us, rule us. We want no other ruler. We ask that you would do this for your namesake. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want us to go back, as I mentioned, to just one verse that Chuck took us through. And as he was moving through 2 Corinthians, he couldn't stop and stay at every one of my favorite verses. So I'm, I, I get to go back. I want us to be very, very concrete and simple this evening. I hope I can pull that off. I want us to look at the issue of setting aside uh, sluggishness when it comes to being disciples of Christ, of really following him as individuals, but also as a church. And I want to see some practical ways that maybe we can think about that in ways that we haven't done that before. When we have a task, um, something that's really worth doing, when we have a goal in mind that is very valuable to us, 
we don't have any trouble being in earnest, you know, being serious about it. We don't have any trouble sacrificing pretty much all of our resources, our time, even friendships, you know, energy, mind, money. We would even give our health at times to get this thing that we want. But if it's something that is not accomplished in a month or two, let's say that this is a, a pursuit that only comes after a, a few years, then we do get tempted to kind of lose the focus and, and to drift. And as we lose the focus, we tend to become less earnest. We become sluggish. If it is a thing that doesn't take three years or 20 years, but it takes the entirety of your life, then your common enemy will always be this temptation to lose a keen perspective, a real hunger for this. And while it's not as if you say that this thing has no value anymore, you know, your life just kind of settles down and becomes like people around you in some ways. And if this is a task that takes a lifetime, even though it's worth a lot, but it's not the kind of thing that you do on occasion. So it's not the kind of thing that will take a lifetime and you have to work every night at it, you know. I work my nights, I work on this. Or weekends, I work on this. Or free time, I work on this. But it's something that calls for an effort that goes throughout the day and night. It is continual and lifelong. When that's the case, it is so easy to lose focus and to become sluggish. Now, that is a very serious problem when we consider the, the prize of following Christ, of becoming like Christ, of doing the will of Christ. It is natural when it's something that involves every moment of every day of every week and month and year of your life as a believer, it is natural for you to kind of lose the keenness of your focus, but it is not acceptable. Especially when you think of the fact that this, this goal, this aim of, of living for Him, of walking with Him, is not something that's just valuable for you. It is something that impacts everyone around you. So the significance is enormous whether you do or do not pursue the goal with a keenness, with, uh, with an appropriate pace. Following Christ in the right way, I think we would say, as an individual or as a church, is more of an issue of desire than personal discipline. Personal discipline comes into it, but personal discipline is something that you and I are willing to do for something that we think is very desirous. If it is extremely valuable, I'm willing to do what it takes to achieve it, whether it means waking up early and going to bed late, you know, whether it means devoting all my resources to it, it's okay because the thing is worth it. If it is something that is not worth it, then we kind of, you know, settle down to a normal cultural religion where 
Maybe we read our Bibles every day, and certainly we would come to church most of the times, but that stretching, that yearning, that, you know, that aching pace, that intensity gets lost because our desires kind of flag. They, you know, they dwindle. We have so many examples of this in Scripture. We don't have time to give them all. Let me just give two. One is an example of an older believer getting comfortable, kind of resting on the past, the spiritual privileges he's had, and then becoming careless in older age. King Solomon, we know, that he goes adrift and does great damage, not just to himself, not to, just to the family that's all around him, but to the entire nation as they embrace idolatry in the last years of Solomon and his son uh, continues with that in, in kind of a restrained way. And then, the, you know, you remember that the nation is split and the north goes with Jeroboam because of Solomon's idolatry and the north goes full-blown into idolatry. There is, you know, when you read the Old Testament, there's just no end of the consequences of Solomon losing a king focus on the worth of living with the living God. As we get older, it's easy to do that. A church example could be Laodicea. By the time Christ speaks to them in the book of Revelation, they've only been around for a few decades, but already Christ has to say that with all of their privileges, with all of their strengths and all of their advantages, they are a church who have grown lukewarm. And he is sickened by their assessment of his worth which makes them okay with losing that keenness and just kind of going through the motions. In the past, whenever I've heard people preach on, uh, you know, lukewarmness in the Christian life, I think what comes to my mind most often is the kind of sermon that scolds you for being lukewarm. And it's not that you disagree. You, you completely agree if you're a Christian and you think it's right. You know, I... My king deserves all my heart. Why, do, why am I so half-hearted in this? How did I get here? How long have I been here? How many people have noticed? You know, Am I the last one to notice? Which often is the case. And then you leave the sermon kind of continuing the scold. Telling yourself how shameful it is and you want to do better. And, but then I, I get home and things press in and I don't do any better. So while sometimes we do need a rebuke, really what I want to do tonight is to take help from Paul in that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and just take that one image he uses of an ambitious person. And to ask ourselves this, if we want to avoid that, that drifting, that distracted heart, that sluggish pace, the lukewarmness that tends to kind of be an unwanted companion on a lifelong journey, then here's my question. How can we be ambitious Christians who are part of an ambitious church? So I want us to think about that, and we'll, we'll look at some kind of basic ways that ambition shows up and apply it spiritually, and then we'll look at what Paul's ambitious to do. So first of all, this whole issue of ambition. Would you describe yourself as an 
ambitious Christian. Not, I'm, so I'm not talking about any other area in your life. Are you an ambitious athlete, an ambitious uh, student, academic? Are you ambitious at work? You want to climb? You, you want to, you know, achieve ever greater things? But as a Christian, are you? Would you think that those who know you best, would they describe you as an ambitious Christian? Would anyone describe Christ Church in New Albany as an ambitious church? Would you even be happy for someone to describe you as an ambitious Christian or this as an ambitious church? Usually when it comes to religion, ambition is rarely a quality that we find is a, is a compliment. Ambition is so easily contaminated with self-centeredness, self-promotion, self-confidence. If you think of the most ambitious people you know that you've ever met in your life, at work or school or anything, if you think of the most ambitious people, they are almost always people who are driven by selfish motives and they are willing to sacrifice everything for what they want for themselves. And they are self-confident. They ooze self-confidence. Sometimes they're the kind of person that even if you're their friend, you think, oh no, here they come. And you kind of take, a, you know, you, you go down another hallway if you see them walking towards you. You think, I, I'm not up to that right now. But what if ambition could be fueled by love to Christ instead of love to self? Could be guided down the path by the pattern of Christ and could aim as the goal at pleasing Christ. And that's what we find with Paul. Therefore, he says in verse 9 again, we also have as our ambition whether at home or absent. So whether I'm at home in the body or I'm absent with the body and I'm with Christ. We have as our ambition living here or laying my body in a grave and living there. My ambition is unaltered. I want to be pleasing to Christ. Uh, as I have grown older, I have found that as as I get older, that a godly ambition is not easy to hang on to. And a worldly ambition is not easy to put away. It doesn't get easier as we get older. When I was younger, I was very ambitious in religion. And then I was converted. And after coming to Christ, then that kind of self-centered ambition disappeared. When I first visited Blue Mountain College, because I heard that it was a conservative school, and it was pretty conservative Bible teaching at that time, and I benefited greatly from the man that was our Bible teacher, um, I, I remember going there and looking at the school. I don't know why, but I remember go, I had to go to the bathroom. So I go into the bathroom, I look around, I think, this place is prehistoric. I mean, my high school looks like 10 times better. It's also 10 times bigger you know, than this little rinky-dink school. So I kind of had, as I, as I mentioned, I wasn't a Christian, just religious. So I walked around the campus and thought, this little place, it's, it's not really what I want. I want something a bit better for me so that I can climb. 
So I went home and told my mom, said, what did you think of the school? And um, I said, ah, you know. And so she kind of pressed me a little more. I don't know why I was so honest. I should have been more ashamed. But basically I said, actually, I think I'm just too smart for Blue Mountain. So she looked at me and said, oh, too smart for Blue Mountain. Too smart for the gospel ministry. Smarter than Spurgeon. Smarter than, and then she went through the long list of people that she had read to me as a kid, you know, all the missionaries. Smarter than Paul? Smarter than? And, of course, I got the point. I was just self-inflated. When I became a believer, I happily laid that aside. And that was not my goal any longer. But I, I don't always find it easy for the right kind of ambition to replace it. And as you get older, it's, it's hard to keep self out of that. You know, you have to keep locking the door against all the different ways that self-centeredness creeps into your Christian life. When we think of the Christian life, I want us to understand that if Paul is a good guide for how to follow Christ, so you can follow Christ, Paul because he's following Christ, then 2 Corinthians 5, 9 makes something clear. It is just as wicked and selfish to be okay with not being a Christian with ambition or a church with godly ambition as it is to be a Christian or a church with self-centered ambitions. I don't think that as a church that we are caught in the, you know, in the web of wanting the world to think we're great. But what if we don't have appropriate ambition? It's just as dangerous. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 1, verse 32, Proverbs, that proverb mentions two types of people who are in spiritual danger. One is the naive, and one is the complacent. So the naive person in the Proverbs, it's, it's an unwise person, it's a fool. And it doesn't mean that they're particularly wicked. They just kind of go through life not, not paying attention to what they should pay attention to. They just drift through, naive of the existence of God, of the significance of their soul, you know, of the significance of their response to God. And so they just go through life not thinking beyond, you know, what's for supper, what's on television, what are my friends doing? And they destroy themselves. But then the second half of that verse says, the complacency of the fools will destroy them also. You, you don't have to be naive about spiritual things. You could just be complacent. Well, I know there's a God. I, I know that he saved us, etc. And then you are complacent. You are self-satisfied. God, not satisfied. Us, satisfied. And that's a destructive thing. When it comes to our souls. So how can we be ambitious Christians. Who are part of an ambitious church. Let's look at what ambition looks like in general. How it acts. And then we'll look at what Paul was ambitious to do. So very simple. When you think of an ambitious person. What are, what are some of the things you can think of. There, there are a number of things that I think of. And so I'll give you these this evening. But you may have some other things that come to mind. And you can make that, uh, you can put that on your own list. If you want the notes from tonight, just let me know and I'll shoot them to you. So let me kind of, 
you know, I wrote down like a lot of little things. So let me kind of bunch them up into some bigger categories. First, an ambitious person is a person whose focus and energy, well, sorry, let me say what I'm, okay, I'm going to have to back you up, all right? Can you reverse? So ambition, what are we not talking about? So we're not talking about a personal temperament, like your personality. Some people are naturally fairly out there, you know, A-type people. They, they, everything they do, they're competitive. They never like to lose. It doesn't even matter if it's something that's unimportant to them. They always want to win. And they're pretty talented. And they, they get used to winning everything. One of the, our folks in the church here that's competitive is Joseph Strievel. I remember going to the Strievels before I knew them very well. And they invited Misty and I over. And we were sitting at a table, Misty and me and Joseph and Andrea. And they had a little game they brought of rocks. And you have to stack these rocks in certain ways based on like the card you pull. And so I was like, wow, that's, you know, I mean, I don't care who wins the rock game, but I'll, I'll do my best. But Joseph and Andrea, man, they whooped us. And then they were mm, toward each other like, you are not going to beat me in the rock game tonight. And very competitive. Are you a competitive person? Is that your natural personality? Or are you the laid back personality that says, uh, you can beat me at rock game. I don't mind, you know. You ever play volleyball with Cramptons? You see how laid back they are? I remember in the early days playing volleyball and Hugh Morris was on Steve's team. And Hugh, like John David, just really wasn't into the game. John David was always in some fictional world. And Hugh was there kind of in his fictional world and he was young, you know, maybe 11 maybe younger, and the ball comes over the net, and he's on Crampton team now, which means you have to be, you know, in the game, and the ball just lands right by Hugh, and Hugh hardly even notices it's landed, and Steve says, okay, Hugh, okay, what world we in, Hugh? And Hugh goes, well, I'm in, and he names some world that doesn't exist, and Steve looked at him and said, well, let's get in this world, Hugh, come on, all right? Are you naturally competitive, aggressive, or reserved? That's not what we're talking about. When Paul says he is, has an ambition, that he is an ambitious Christian, it has nothing to do with your natural personality. It is spiritual. It is a supernatural thing. You can be a very quiet, unassuming kind of person that never you know, finds it easy to be the center of attention, never wants to be the one that speaks up, but your heart can be captivated with a really a God-pleasing ambition, even though on the outside, you're not one of those people. So we're not talking about that kind. And let me give you another thing we're not talking about. We're also not talking about being a dreamer. So it's not personality, and it's not dreamer. There are some people that you know who have very high hopes of what's coming in life. You know, you think of a young person. What do you want to do? Oh, they, they name it. And you try not to show it on your face when they name it because you think, like, that's going to be hard. Are you, are you doing what it takes to achieve that goal? And you look at their life and you wouldn't call them ambitious. They have big dreams, but their life doesn't match anything they say they want. And so they kind of are just dreamers. We're not talking about that. 
I'm not asking you, are, as a Christian, are you a, a, a competitive person? Are you a person who has big dreams for you, for your family, for your church? What we're asking is this. Do you have the same ambition gripping you, altering you as Paul had? How do ordinarily ambitious people express themselves? Well, let me get back to that. I had to back you up. Now we're ready for it. Let me give you number one. An ambitious person often has something they value so much, so far above all other things that it creates a single-mindedness. They become very focused, kind of overly focused, most people think, on this one thing. They do not spread their energies and their thoughts out over a, a multitude of things. They're not, you know, jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Single-mindedness develops in this person because there is something they desire. And that thing in their eyes has such worth. It's so significant. It's worth it to devote all of life to it. You know, we would say like it has this. It's like the sun. It has mass. It's significant. It has worth. And it pulls everything toward it. It funnels all the things in life into a very narrow stream and single-minded people can accomplish extraordinary things, whether they're Christians or not. A person that will dedicate what God has given them in human resources and time and energy and intellect into one channel can usually accomplish what they want to accomplish. But we're speaking of a Christian. So an ambitious Christian is someone who is gripped by the value of one thing that so excels other things that it pulls all of life the, the desires into kind of, it funnels them into one narrow band. It reduces the number of things that you really are thrilled with. You may have many pursuits in life that you go about, but they are not the thing. And it changes your value system. It makes you value some things that on the surface, don't have much value, but they become very valuable to you because they can be a tool to achieve the goal. Or, in other ways, it makes you devalue or be disinterested in some things that other people think are very valuable because these things are not helpful for you to reach this goal, this aim. So, an ambitious, an ambitious person has this this desire, I want to be this, I want to accomplish this. And then they begin, you start to notice, they begin to remove things in life that are nice, other people enjoy, they don't care for them. Why not? Because it's not directly attached to getting me to the goal. And then other things that other people think are not very valuable, they, they think are of great value. And these things they gather and turn into instruments to bring them to where they want to be. Second, so the desires and the values are totally reworked by this thing you want. Second, an ambitious person having their value system being different, it 
leads them to spend and use everything they have in the pursuit of that goal. So even common things are of value to them because it leads to the goal. Let me give you some examples. Imagine a businessman, a very ambitious young businessman who is not much of a a people person, naturally. But he makes himself be a people person. He values every encounter with certain people because these are people that he can network with and he can make himself, his, he can you know, further his career, he can build his business. He may not really care about people because they're people, he just cares about them because they are the kind of people that he can use to accomplish something bigger. He may have a wife and children that he neglects every week, every weeknight, every weekend because he's focused on climbing the ladder, being the greatest, achieving what he wants to achieve, building his little kingdom. And yet, even though he has little heart for his family, he seems to be so friendly with those that will help him. Give you another example. A person who is academically ambitious. They don't just want to get finished with school. They don't just want to graduate with good grades. They have things they want in life. And to get to those things, they have to use every class, every grade is a tool to reach this goal. So they are academically ambitious. I had friends that had big academic plans. You know, I want to go to this college, very hard to get into. And then I want to get this job because I graduated from this college. And they devoted everything to that. So they gave up time with friends. We all got together. They never came. We got together on the weekends. They never came. They would show up at a minimal of events, like maybe their family brought them to church. But then Sunday afternoon, they were back to the books because they were ambitious. They sacrificed everything for the academics. Think of an athlete. It's very different to be a person who exercises like a runner and a person who has the goal of being the best. Then everything is sacrificed to that. I remember running with Catherine during those years and and I would read some articles because she was always killing me. So I try to read articles like how I could be a better runner. And I was amazed at what people, how if you wanted to be an elite runner, which I never was, but if I wanted to get better, I thought, well, I'll, I'll listen to their advice and running took over everything. When I went to sleep, when I woke up had to be based, that had to be done solely for running. What I ate, of course, had to be chosen based on the coming run. Was it a long run or a short run? I was amazed to read that even how I took a bath would affect maybe the way I could run a long run the next day. And there was research that showed that people were taking very cold ice baths, very cold ice baths to cause the legs, the lower half of your body to store up oxygen in the blood in a way that it wouldn't normally. And then that way in the very long run the next day, you would have an advantage. And, you know, so all these things. What about musicians? Well, you can imagine a person who says, I like to play this. And then a person who is, this is my life. I intend to be in an orchestra. I intend to be the best 
in the orchestra at this. And so one person picks it up and plays, you know, a little, but then somebody asks them to go do something, they put it down. Another person says, I'm busy, and they continue to practice. When we have a goal, we change everything. We sacrifice everything. We rearrange everything to reach the goal because we are ambitious. Of course, ambitious people avoid things that would get in the way, things that aren't helpful, even though they're pleasant. And ultimately, if you don't understand what the person is pursuing, ambitious people, their choices just, they don't make sense. You think, well, why not? Are you saying this is wrong? Are you saying this is bad? Are you saying you don't like this, you know, or these people? And no, not at all, but I have an ambition. That brings us to the second part. What is Paul's ambition? So if we want to be an ambitious church, ambitious Christians, then there will have to be something that we value more than other things, so much so that it rearranges our desires. It pulls everything into this funnel and redirects them. It causes us to be willing to sacrifice things that other people enjoy. We don't complain because... We're focused on something greater. It causes us to pour everything into it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, his ambition is to be pleasing to Christ. Gripped by this gratitude for his Savior's redeeming work, gripped by the majesty of Christ, the love and the loveliness of Christ, Paul's values as a religious man are completely rearranged in conversion and they never go back. This becomes the great attraction in Christianity for Paul. It pulls everything into its orbit. Things are valued by how they are connected with Paul being able to please the Lord more and things are devalued if they are things that might distract Paul from pleasing the Lord It's a category, when we think of pleasing the Lord, it's a category that includes all the aspects of your love for Christ, your loyalty to Christ, the obedience that you owe to Him. So it's quite a big category. So for simplicity's sake, let me just give you a couple of things about this, how this ambition will show itself. If we're to be ambitious Christians in the way that honors God, then we will have to be, you will have to be ambitious in figuring out what actually is pleasing to the Lord. Do you read the scripture carefully? Old Testament and New. In Ephesians 5, Paul's talking about practical ways that we implement all those great doctrines from Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. So he's talked about this, this mountain range of God's grace from eternity past to eternity future and how the Christian is caught up in that And then he talks about, so don't live like you used to live, but instead live differently. And listen to what he says in Ephesians 5, verse 10. Um, Therefore, do not be partakers with them, with the world. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Then he says this, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So, young church, be ambitious. All right, where do we start? Be ambitious. 
Let things be funneled into one great desire, pleasing him. That means you will be willing to sacrifice, rearrange life, pour out resources to learn what pleases him. It's not automatic. It's not just what we feel in the moment. So we study the scriptures, like Paul says to them, to learn what pleases Christ. Let me give you another If you're going to be ambitious to please the Lord, you will have to be ambitious in a way that causes you to approach circumstances with pleasing Christ at the center and not other things. Certainly not pleasing ourselves, but we know that. But sometimes I find in the scripture and in our lives that in living for the pleasure of Christ, sometimes... We have to be patient with people who are struggling to do that. And it doesn't look like you're as serious about holiness as the person who is next to you who's impatient. So you're part of a church that's very imperfect. And you look at the church and you see all the imperfections. And you have one or, you know, there's a a number of responses you can have. One response is, I am so interested in pleasing Jesus That I'm going to go around and become the policeman of the church. And I go and I correct everyone. I want to have the right kind of family. Because that's what pleases Jesus. So I'm going to become the heavy handed, you know, law in the home. And I'm going to make everyone miserable until they're fully sanctified. But that is not how Christ did it. It's not how Paul did it. It's not how the churches are to do it. If you're going to please the Lord, you're going to have to be very careful And wise, let me call your attention to one passage in particular, Romans 14. Because I I want to just give this example where the church is struggling to know what to do. There are some people that think certain things are okay. Other people in the church think these things are not okay. So these are cases of conscience. Is your conscience clear in doing this or is it bothered? We might call these areas that can kind of be thought of as gray areas. But there is a very clear path through the middle of them. And the path is this. Are you, are you ambitious to please the Lord? Then that affects how you'll act. So listen to this and notice how pleasing the Lord is used as the great motivator for how you treat each other in an imperfect church. So Romans 14 verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but... Not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, right? Don't, don't accept them, but really you think you're far above them. One person has faith that he may eat all things. You know, things, even things that came from places where they were devoted to idols. And that person feels fine with that. But he who is weak, I can't eat that. He eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Um, And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Your brother, your sister in Christ, they, they have a master. To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, okay, religious days. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it 
for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat. And gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself. And no, uh, not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For because, because, for, to this end, this is the goal. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So do you see, when Paul's dealing with these questions of, well, is it right to do this? Is it right to eat this? Is it right to meet on these days, but not these days? And genuine believers are really confused and they're judging each other. You're so immature, you think that this is holy. And the younger Christian says, you become calloused as you become older as a Christian. You don't even care. You just think you're beyond the rules. And so Paul approaches it all and says, well, why don't you live for the Lord, whether you're eating or not eating? And that will take care of your problem, and that will take care of how you treat each other. Let me give you another thing. If we're going to be ambitious to please the Lord, it will be the kind of ambition, it will have to show itself in your determination to meet the commands of God each day. In Colossians chapter 1, there's that wonderful prayer where Paul prays that God would open their eyes and strengthen them within so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, matching the Lord. And then he gives a series of things that fall into that. Well, what does it look like to live worthy of the God that saved you? To please him in all respects. In the Greek, it means, it, the, the little reading, which wouldn't do so well in English, is unto all pleasing. So walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk unto all pleasing. Bishop Mool in the 19th century, who was a very good Greek scholar, very earnest Christian in the Anglican church during the same time as, as a Spurgeon. He says, this could be translated into English by this phrase. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to the meeting of his every wish. Very simple picture in my mind. Sometimes you get, you know, you're getting going and you're head, you grab the keys and you're headed to the car, you're going somewhere and your wife or your husband or your kids say, where are you going? And you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going here, I'm going to do this. So Christian, just ask yourself, where are you going? Ask each other in, in a loving way at church. Where are you going? I am going to meet his every wish. Ephesians 2, even before he created the world, he designed a life of obedience. We are his workmanship, he says in verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, not just in general, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The scripture lays these out for our feet. Where are you headed? Chuck, where are you going? Ron, where are you going? Lena, where are you going? John, where are you going? Pat, where are you going? Is your answer, I'm going, whatever I'm doing in life, I'm going to the same place I always go. I'm going to meet his wishes, to do his commands. If you're to be ambitious, you will have to be determined that this is something that will last and you will increase 
And not reach a place where you feel that this is enough. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul boasts in the Thessalonians, but he points out that it's, there's still more to go, still more ground to take. Finally, he says, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. All right, so there's the pleasing God. So Paul is writing. Remember when we were there? You remember what we said about pleasing God? Then he says this, just as you actually do walk. Yeah, I know you're living to please God. He said, we write this to you, that you excel still more, that you make progress. An ambitious church will never say, I think we've gotten Christ-like enough. There's always more. How can you fuel that ambition? Well, of course, there's the fuel of pride. I want to be a better Christian. We need to be a better church. That, that's just wretched. I mean, you know, that doesn't please the Lord at all. It's just pleasing us. So the only fuel I know is, like Paul, to reacquaint yourself with Christ so frequently throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the service, throughout your quiet time to gather every portrait you see of the glory of God in the face of his son so that it is natural almost for you to want to sacrifice everything so that it can all be funneled into one better, greater goal. I want to live pleasing this king. Small king, hard work to live for him. Infinite Christ. You know, you think of the pictures in scripture of him in his glory now. What a privilege to spend my few years here, my limited hours, funneling every energy, whatever I'm doing, family, church, work, ball field, it's all being brought into one great work. I have an ambition I'm ambitious. My ambition is to please Christ at the ball field, you know, at the grocery store, at the church. Well, may the Lord help us.